Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. Good afternoon. I am here with Andrew Briggs and Andrew Steen, and uh, we're in Oxford, England, uh, about a mile from Oxford University at Andrew Briggs' home. And these two guys and a third gentleman from the United States have written a book called It Keeps Me Seeking. And it is a book intended to bring science and faith together and get each of these two disciplines to bring the best out of each other. And it's no secret that generally in the media and in the pop culture, science and religion are pitted against each other, but they wanted to bring it together. And they wrote this book uh, published by Oxford University Press. And I read it with great interest and fascination a couple months ago. It's a very carefully written, thoughtful, cautious, considerate book. And it's very non-confrontational and pleasant and conversational. And I was going to be in Oxford. I reach out to Andrew Briggs and lo and behold, he was open to doing a podcast interview. So let's talk about your book. So, well, thank you very much, Perry. <laughs> it's a joy to be with you again. It is. And we're it's looking great. forward to this conversation. So, what are the roots of this book? If we go long before you ever started writing a book like this, what motivations would conspire to make you interested in trying to harmonize these two? I mean, you're a, I didn't properly introduce you guys either, okay? So Andrew is a physicist in nanomaterials at Oxford, and the last conversation we had about physics was about quantum computing, nanomaterials and nanoacoustics, right? And then Andrew Steen, he's written a thermodynamics textbook, he's written a quantum mechanics textbook, and he does precision laser experiments to explore the frontiers of quantum theory. So... We're in high cotton, as they might say in the southern United States. Anything you guys might want to add or change to that? Okay, that's, that's essentially correct. The two textbooks I've written are in thermodynamics and the other one is relativity. Oh, okay. But you're not wrong to mention quantum physics because that is also my sort of area of, mm. of research. So that's very much my area too. Well, what I should tell you, because Andrew's too modest to tell you this himself, is that... A brilliant, brilliant idea that Andrew came up with changed the feasibility of quantum computing as a realistic technology. Oh, okay. And the idea was to do with um, error correction. How do you make mistakes? Because in every sphere of human endeavor, 
you have to have a way of coping with things that didn't work quite right, mm -hmm. or go wrong or get corrupted. You have to do it in human relationships, and the process there is called forgiveness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you have to do it in all um, communications and all computation. Yes, Things go wrong. You, you have to, the, our bodies do it with uh, the replication of DNA, actually, mm -hmm. and they have to have a way of correcting the mistakes. Otherwise, so uh, actually, we couldn't reproduce. And for a long time, it was thought that that would never be possible in quantum computing. Mm. And the reason is that uh, in ordinary computing, you can just copy information. So you can copy it and you can check it against itself and <coughs> check for the mistakes that way. In quantum information, there's a theorem, it's called the no-cloning theorem, which basically says you can't copy information, you can't have a quantum photocopier. And everybody thought that would make fault-tolerant error correction completely impossible. Mm. And you had to put alongside that the fact that quantum states are very, very delicate. Mm. They're much more easily corrupted. Um, they're much more venal in that sense than conventional you know, information, sort of binary information that we now use in almost every aspect of our digital lives. And Andrew came up with a way of getting round this problem of the no-cloning theorem, which meant that you would be able to cope with mistakes, you would be able to cope with this very delicate nature of the quantum states, and then the world realized that actually quantum computing would be viable, and it's tempting to say the rest is history. The history, is, <laughs> history isn't quite finished yet because yep, right. we're still on the way to making uh, big quantum computers. But it really did change the feasibility of the technology. Well, so there was a suspicion, in other words, that quantum computing was a hopeless fantasy until Andrew Steen sorted this out, right? Yeah, and independently, uh, people working in America were also coming to the same sort of research ideas which I was having. So Peter Shaw and Roger Calderbank are the names we tend to mention there. But in the end, of course, scientific research tends to become very quickly a, uh, a communal effort. So, you know, there are plenty of other people who've also had some very important contributions. Well, I think it's very interesting that you bring that up because when I went down the evolution rabbit hole, the first question that I decided needed to be answered was, okay, so is it true that DNA copying errors would occasionally produce better and better eyes, better wings, better species, new species, all that? And because I had written an Ethernet book and I suddenly figured out that information, as I understood it already, was absolutely crucial to biology, the answer was a resounding no. Actually, all of the things that are in an Ethernet router are in a cell, at least analogously, error correction and detection and all of that. And what you discovered is the quantum computing equivalent, which already exists in all of the other ordinary systems, right? So, and this is a very fundamental thing, and you were mentioning earlier, before we started recording, that you did a paper a while back to figure out 
is information just a descriptive thing or is it a fundamental unit of nature? And I think you concluded that oh, it's more like a fundamental unit of nature. And I agree, right? And so, well, so here we are. <laughs> here we are. And in a sense, this book arose out of this shared passion for um, quantum science, quantum physics, quantum technologies in the following way that Andrew and now for people listening because it's confusing I'm talking I'm Andrew Briggs talking about Andrew Steen <laughs> and yeah. um, Hans Halverson who is a professor of philosophy at Princeton who's actually made major contributions to the philosophy of physics in general and the philosophy of quantum physics in particular we're really interested in what is the nature of reality and how do we have to rethink the nature of reality in the context of quantum theory? <laughs> so if you go back, you know, a couple of hundred years, what scientists might have described themselves as doing, they might have said, well, there's a reality out there. There's a reality of the material world, and if you like, you know, with the discoveries of Faraday and Maxwell and others, a reality of the world of fields, electromagnetic fields and gravitational fields and so on. And that's a reality. And what we're trying to do in science is we're trying to study it and understand it and give a description of it. And the test of our description is how accurately and how helpfully it corresponds to the reality that we're seeking to describe. Well and good. Yep. Okay? Yep. That's all clear. Very straightforward. Until quantum theory came along. <laughs> yes. And now it sort of threw up into the air again. What do we actually mean by reality? So uh, in quantum theory, we describe things by quantum states. And now you can ask, well, is the quantum state a state of reality? Or is it just a sort of description of our knowledge and our uncertainty about what will happen when we make a measurement. We do an experiment, make a measurement. And these things have got technical names. The first is called the ontological uh, description, and the second one's called the epistemic description. So people have been thinking about these things for a long time, and there are lots of nuances within that. Can I just clarify? So it's the question of, is a quantum state the way it really is, or is it just the way we measure it? Is that if you like, essentially... yeah, yeah. Or describe the likely outcome of a measurement. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And one has to say, if it is the second of those, it's extraordinarily accurate and it's extraordinarily useful. So quantum theory has probably been tested to more decimal places than any other theory ever devised by the human mind. And mm. it stands up to it. Yeah. So um, what you can say for sure is that, you know, all these years... Further on, so I suppose quantum theory, you know, that the heyday of the development was in the 1920s, though it had its origins earlier than that, and it's certainly been developed since then. There's still no agreement amongst the community of scientists about some of these questions of interpretation. Yeah. And one of these, you know, what do we mean by the nature of reality? So Andrew and Hans and I had a sort of shared passion for thinking about these things, including a passion for some of the ways that you can actually test some of them experimentally. So mm. we've actually done some experiments where you can at least rule out some of the candidate interpretations that people have um, 
suggested. Mm. And I think it was out of that general passion that we found ourselves wanting to dig a bit deeper and saying, well, you know, these questions of reality in the world of the sort of things that we study by our science might prompt us to think about reality in other areas of human intellectual endeavour and other areas of the way that we live our lives. And it was trying to think about that, trying to think about fundamental questions of truth and meaning and purpose that got us talking together, thinking together, discussing together, out of which this book arose. I'd like to add two thoughts. Um, I'll try and be brief, but I think the first thought I want to say is that when we say, from the perspective of quantum physics, that the nature of reality remains subtle and not fully agreed and therefore somewhat mysterious, that's not the same thing as saying it's all up, totally up for grabs. It doesn't mean anything goes. It doesn't at all mean that. We have a very precise science in quantum physics. The natural world you know, is some way, is what it is, and it won't sort of become different from how it is just because we don't understand it very fully. Uh, so quantum physics is a very precise science, and yet, I, you know, so I want to just make sure we're clear about that. But it does show that the nature of the physical world is simply not quite so simple as was previously thought. Yeah. And if I had to put my finger on one aspect which I personally find to be particularly important here, it's the notion called by philosophers reductionism. So this is the notion that a given thing made of many parts can always and completely be understood in terms of the individual parts individually and their connections together. Mm -hmm. It turns out that in quantum physics it's not quite like that. It's still very much like that, but that's not quite the whole story. Uh, anyway, this is just uh, a comment on quantum physics. Mm. But coming back to the... Well, I'm very interested in that. Yeah. So if you want to pick that up later, okay, you go right ahead. All right. Well, I just wanted to come back to the nature of the sort of motivation for the book. I think all of us are at a stage of life where we've had long enough to have some time and space to do careful thinking around issues such as what is science? What is faith? What is that what sort of human, what is it as humans that we mean by words like faith? And why are we Christian? So, of course, we've had time and space to think about such things. And it's a great privilege to have that time. And so eventually, I guess we were all feeling, OK, I'm ready to put something down on paper. It's not that putting something on paper means that's it. I'm all, <laughs> I'm all done. Right. It doesn't mean that. Right. But it does mean we're ready to say something. Well, the book has a very cautious texture and feel. Mm. It's like... Like, some people just want to go mashing through the tulips. You have people on the skeptical side. Like, All right, let me tell you how it is, right? You have people on the far right. All right, let me tell you how it is. And you kind of wade in where angels fear to tread. And there's very much a sense of, well, the book's also a kind of a conversation between the three of you, mm -hmm. Right. And, and like, well, we are grappling with literally the biggest questions of humanity here, and we're trying to take the religious sphere and the scientific sphere and respectfully, choreographically sort of bring them together. That's Yeah, yeah, I'm going to come in there, because one of the things I think we have in common, and certainly I am passionate about, is that I don't want to allow people to see this as an attempt to harmonise things which were otherwise discordant. It's not that mm. at all for me. My mm. whole experience of science has always been 
Uh, no, this is not a discord with what I believe is a Christian at all. It's rather, to the contrary, it's almost completely harmonious. And yeah, I do have to say the word almost. You know, there are, there are <laughs> tensions. <laughs> yeah, there okay. are difficulties. Yeah. But nevertheless, the main theme here, the main story is, uh, and I think this is borne out by Andrew's work with Roger Wagner about, about the history of science, that, that in fact science, as a Christian, is a thoroughly natural occupation. And it's altogether comfortable with what it is to be a follower of Christ. But I say that aware that even that phrase, follower of Christ, itself it covers you know, a range of mm-hmm. different versions of what people mean by that. And of course, I wouldn't subscribe to the whole of the range yeah. that people mean by it. But I think right. within, the, within the sort of central range of what that might mean, I think science is a very natural and positive experience. So, Dr. Steen, if, if you were to just encapsulate what does a, being a follower of Christ mean to a scientist or to the practice of science? What is that? Okay, that's difficult, and I had to pause a moment to collect my thoughts. I think it includes that even to be a follower of Christ, that means for me, I think already, that you've given due attention and consideration to the records that we have of Jesus' life and of the early church. And you've also sort of recognised the community that's been built up on that foundation. And you've come to the place where you're ready to acknowledge your sort of membership of that community and what it represents. So that's the starting point. And then how does that influence one's scientific work? Well, it doesn't actually require a different version of science and the reason for that is I think largely because science already has its roots in that very community it doesn't only have roots there but it has a large proportion of its roots come from that very community so that when we do science we are already to some extent being Christian whether we meant to or not if we do you know not with the right attitude with you know we bring to it all the moral qualities that any serious work has to have you know we have to be honest and so on and uh, but we're also interested in exploring and asking questions you know we want to knock and see if the door will open you know we're interested in finding out things and that's obviously a very big motivation for science i think though my colleague andrew will probably be able to add something as well before you chime in okay could you just speak to the person who goes i'm not quite sure what you're talking about. I thought, um, you know, with Galileo and, and you know, I thought uh, science kind of rescued us from religion in the last, uh, with the Enlightenment and, like, what are you talking about? Like, uh, you know, science almost comes out of the Christian community. What do you mean by that? Yeah, okay. So this would take a long time to really do it justice. Uh, a brief um, version is, yeah. is adequate. Um, of the Enlightenment, I want to say, on the one hand, I fully welcome those freedoms which the Enlightenment is recognised as having brought. The freedoms to do with honest intellectual inquiry should be free to go where, and as long as we do things with, with a good attitude and honesty and looking for truth, uh, these things are great. Yeah. The Enlightenment also, though, has also, I think, and I think people now are willing to see the Enlightenment in a more neutral way and recognise that it also tended to cause too much of a definition of humanity in terms of individuals and not and it tended to lose somewhat the notion that we are also a community it tended to 
slightly the pendulum swung a little bit too far in one direction mm. I think we're now trying to sort of mm. find out what it was that was somewhat lost in that way of thinking and sort of get regain what it is to be part of one another and then regarding the history of the science and the church Andrew uh, my colleague here is much more fully informed on this but I think a careful look at that history would say that the on balance that has been more a story of something rather creative than the reverse and when you pick up an example such as Galileo that's the exception rather than the rule you know you have to reach back hundreds of years to find that example yeah isn't that interesting yeah and of course as I know but as perhaps listeners may not know Galileo himself is a fully signed up follower of Jesus to the end of his life uh, mm-hmm. and serious about it mm-hmm. his wish was to reform the church not to overturn it mm-hmm. but to help it to understand better those things which it can do. Uh, anyway, I'll leave it there, I think. I'm sure that's right. It was, I mean, it was an argument within the church. Some extent, I said it was an argument within the scientific community, though even that's an anachronistic description because it didn't really exist mm. as a distinct community in those yeah. days. The most distinguished lectures each year in Oxford series is the Bampton Lectures. This year they were given by a very distinguished historian of science from... Um, University of Queensland in Australia, Peter Harrison. And uh, one of the things that uh, jobs that he's doing at the moment, and he says quite a community of historians of science around him, he (laughs) describes it as myth-busting. And the myth that they collectively want to bust is this myth that science and religion have always been in conflict, or if, as you were expressing it, you know, that science has set us free from religion and so on. And the particular thing that is emerging now is the way that that was a narrative that was created towards the end of the 19th century. And there were a number of people in the, uh, at that period, Draper and White in the USA, one or two in the UK, Thomas Henry Huxley and one or two others, who wanted to create a separation between science and religion. And what uh, Peter is is showing as a very distinguished historian is that in order to achieve that, they created this story that science and religion had always been in conflict. Mm -hmm. And I hope that his scholarship and the scholarship of others will help to put the record straight and, Mm -hmm. you know, to give us a more accurate picture. I think that... Oh, no. Andrew, you chip in. Well, I, I want to make sure, to be fair, that we, in case anyone listening is thinking, well, hang on a minute, hasn't, haven't there been quite a few three really nasty, well, difficult issues in American public life, you know, in the course of the last 50 years? And, of course, there have. Mm. But I think of all of us will recognise those clashes are not quite correctly called merely science and religion. It's not quite that that's going on. You know, when things like, like the Scopes trial... Mm. And, it's to do with different communities having a different vision for how they want to bring up the next generation. Mm. It's very much about that, isn't it? It's about mm. education. And I think that I would say that I do think the Christian community worldwide has got a certain amount of the need to put its own house in order. You know, I think I'm willing to use the phrase Christian community as a fairly broad phrase to, you know, to embrace most people who would want to give themselves that appellation. And I think within that, though, I would say, yeah, there are some very 
serious misunderstandings and sometimes abuses going on in the area of what we teach about the natural sciences. And so I admit that here, <laughs> everyone who's listening, our house, if I count myself a member of this community, is not completely you know, free of its own mistakes. And I'll say that for <laughs> Absolutely, yes. But, the, but yes. I would say I see that the future, though, I see is a positive one. I think I am fundamentally an optimist in that if we continue to pursue our understanding of the natural world as honestly and fully as we can, and we are open and willing to recognise our connection to God, those two, in the end, will, I believe, be found to be perfectly at ease with one another. And I think one can see why that is. I mean, it's worth just saying rather quickly for your listeners that um, it's a matter of empirical observation that there are plenty of scientists, some of them high, scientists of the highest level of distinction by any measure, who would say that they are Christians and follow Jesus Christ and believe in God. Yeah. And it's important that to put that out there. Uh, yes. And that's empirically observable. And I suppose in our own sort of small way, Andrew and Hans and I are examples of that. Yes, you are. It's not surprising that for those who are scientifically minded, following Christ leads you to be passionately uh, pursuing science because an important aspect of following Christ is a passion for the truth. Yeah. And, you know, the scientific process, the scientific community, I hesitate to say the scientific method because I don't think there is any one scientific mm. method. I think it's more like an apprenticeship, actually, mm. is a marvellous way of finding out the truth about the material world, the physical world. And that's why Andrew and I love doing it. And one of the things that is a theme running through uh, the book, It Keeps Me Seeking, is that it's okay to live with uncertainty. Now, actually, sort of outside academia, for my friends in business and commerce, this comes as no surprise. I mean, you know, we're forever living with uncertainty. It's part of our job. And, you know, the successful businessman is the person who time and again makes a good decision on the basis of incomplete information. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> All of my business folks will totally vouch for that. Yes. So this comes as no surprise there. And I think that what we want to disabuse anybody of is that science is all certain or something. And indeed, you know, Andrew and I and, and other professors at Oxford, actually part of our professional responsibility is identifying for graduate students and others areas of uncertainty where there's a realistic prospect of making progress within the duration of a PhD. All right? Yeah, right. <laughs> and if there were no uncertainty, uh, we'd have... No more job to do as university right. professor. Well, I suppose we could teach undergraduates, but I mean on the research side. Yeah. And there'd be no more PhDs to be had because it would all be wrapped up. So we love uncertainty, but, 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 this needs to be nuanced because it does not mean that we're not confident of anything in science. Okay? Yeah. It means that Part of our professional expertise, part of our professional judgment is to judge the levels of confidence that are appropriate for any 
part of the body of scientific knowledge and for any part of the prospects for scientific research. So simply by way of example, in material science, we're pretty confident of the phase diagrams of aluminium alloys. Okay. And so are you, actually, because you've just arrived by a plane that's made <laughs> out of aluminium. Yes. <laughs> and you were willing to commit your life to the confidence that these aluminium alloys are well enough understood to bring you safely from the US to... <laughs> And that the cracks and the rivets aren't going to split the belly of the airplane open and spill me out. So we have a high level of confidence, alongside which some of my colleagues are doing very exciting research investigating the uncertainties in the behavior of aluminum alloys. So I hope that we can all see that in science, that it's a nuanced thing. And I think it's true of the life of faith as well. So the book is called It Keeps Me Seeking, for good reason, because there's all sorts of things that we can be uncertain of in our relationship with God and we can enjoy learning more about. But, 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 <laughs> we can learn a lesson from science here. That doesn't mean we can't be confident of anything. Mm-hmm. All right. So we can be quite confident of the uh, textual history of the documents that have made their way into our Bibles. We can be quite confident of some of the um, historical setting of the life of Jesus Christ. We can be quite confident that he died and that people have reflected carefully on the significance of his death and that the early believers had this extraordinary experience of him being alive again. So while there are plenty of things that we don't understand that keep us seeking, there are other things on which we can be sufficiently confident to make life choices. And really, it seems to me that, so as a Christian and an entrepreneur and an engineer, that faith, in my mind, means almost exactly the same thing in all three disciplines. So... I got business stuff that I'm doing right now, and it's predicated on all kinds of assumptions that could be wrong, right? I don't know if the stock market's going to blow up tomorrow or, you know, whatever, right? In science, if you really get down to it, you discover that all scientific principles are inductive, meaning that they've been inferred. Right. Well, there doesn't seem to be an exception to gravity, so we got these equations for gravity, but somebody could prove them wrong tomorrow, right? But right now, this is what I got, so I'm going to build an airplane, right? And that faith in God is not fundamentally any different than that. It's just a bigger bet. But I don't see it being any different. It's uncertainty and risk. And yeah. it's what you do. It's not just like it's a... It's certainly what you do about what you do, yeah. Right. I'd like to suggest that it's helpful for me, and I hope maybe for others, to have another couple of words sort of thrown in to sort of show what I think faith is. Because the word faith has itself been much used and therefore much abused. You know, people have used it in different ways. And, and for some, it does mean something which I would not go for you know some sort of way of saying oh well I just think this and that's faith you know and they haven't really got any other basis on which to think a certain thing so they just use the word faith as a cover and I think no that's not what I'm into at all a word which I found helpful it's alongside the word faith it's willingness 
Mm. I think that to me that captures quite a lot about what faith is because mm. faith does start from some sort of sign of something. You know, you need something to work with. Otherwise, what are you going to have faith in? You know, you have faith in something. You have some evidence, in other words. But the evidence on its own doesn't tell you what to do. You know, you don't have to respond. And it's that willingness to then go further in the direction the evidence is um, sort of inviting you. And I think that overlaps quite well with what I think I heard you say about one's practice, whether in business or in science and other areas. It's faith involves a willingness to take things to the next step, even though you can't guarantee any, everything, but you're not just going to be completely sort of paralysed by indecision. Right. Um, well, there's always skin in the game. I think yeah. that's right. So I love that. And because we're talking about a very rich concept, let's throw in a couple of other ingredients mm-hmm. too, which are commitment and confidence. Mm. And commitment is a part of your willingness, but also with the implication that you're committed to something or to someone. And I want to introduce the element that there's a level of confidence commensurate with what you're trying to do. So not certainty, which is in most cases completely unachievable. (laughs) Yes. But it's sufficient foundation for you to say, well, having looked at it, I'm sufficiently confident that I'm going to go ahead with this. Mm-hmm. Which again relates back to you know our friends who are in business and commerce and those kinds of uh, walks of life. Yeah, Andrew, you you said I'm not sure there's any one scientific method. I there's an apprenticeship. Yes. Tell me about that. Well, it, it, <laughs> how do we learn to do science? We learn from working with great scientists who we admire. So my professor, when I was doing a PhD student, was a wonderful man called David Table, who had very high standards. And he didn't sort of sit down on day one as a graduate student and say, Andrew, this is how you do science. Off you go. Come back in three years when you've got your PhD. <laughs> so what was it? Test hypothesis, right? <laughs> It wasn't quite that simple. Well, no, I mean, I suppose when you look at what you actually did, you can sort of see that pattern. Yeah. So you can find that pattern in the way that you work. And certainly a crucial part of deciding what experiment to do next is asking, what will I learn from the outcome of this experiment? So what are the possible results that I might get? And what would I learn according to the different results? And if the answer is... Actually, it doesn't matter what the outcome is, it wouldn't change anything, then that's not a very good experiment to do. <laughs> okay. Yeah, sure. And that, of course, was Karl Popper's objection to some of the pseudoscience that he saw in Austria when he was mm. doing his early thinking about this. We're now having fun in the lab actually automating that process. So uh, a couple of years ago, set ourselves the goal using machine learning, which is a branch of artificial intelligence, that uh, within five years, the machine would be deciding what to measure next to the standard of a second-year graduate student, which is not a very precise measure, but at least it's memorable. (laughs) It actually only took a year and a half. Mm. So now the machine, machine learning, does actually run the experiments in our lab, in my lab, and it decides what measurement to do next. And the criterion that it's using is technically called Bayesian optimization. The criterion is, from the different measurements you could make next, which one will you learn most from? 
Oh. And it's called an acquisition function, and one of the important advances has been very rapid methods of finding the maximum in the acquisition function, mm. because that's the place to measure, because that's the measurement will teach you the most. In mm. other words, increasing the accuracy and also increasing the confidence in what might mm. be a mathematical function, for example, describing the device that we've got in yeah. the cryostat. I'd like to add, for the benefit of listeners, this is machine learning within a carefully characterised area. And I think if I just compare with the famous uh, advances in computer game playing. So, you know, we know that there's Deep Blue, isn't it, that is very proficient at chess. There's another yes. project that became very proficient at Go. Yeah. So these are very proficient in a carefully prescribed area. And similarly, Andrew's talking about research in the lab now where it's possible to, within a certain set of concepts and ideas and certain types of uh, electronic device, you can set the problem up so that a computer can then sort of grapple with it. But it doesn't replace the, the sort of thinking which Andrew himself will be doing, meanwhile, <laughs> thinking about something that we don't know how even to begin to tell a computer yeah. what it is. Cause, yeah. you know, so, of course, the, the, it, I guess we're saying that the artificial intelligence is now coming alongside as a, as a rather wonderful new tool, but we're still free to explore. Well, and actually, we sometimes use the slogan, taking the robot out of the human because mm. it sets you free for the most creative aspects of doing science. And so perhaps this relates to why I'm saying there's no one scientific method. Um, because this is a voice recording, your listeners can't see, but we're sitting in a room which has the largest collection in the world of early paintings by Roger Wagner, the <laughs> colleague that I wrote oh. the, the other book you mentioned, oh, the yes. penultimate curiosity. So Roger and I wrote that together. And so you're enjoying some of his most remarkable early paintings here. Many of them have been exhibited in the Ashmolean Museum. And you don't have a painting method. You know, mm. Roger didn't go to the Royal Academy, and on day one they said, Roger, this is how you paint. Off you go. And in three years you'll qualify. Yeah. All right? Yeah. It's a creative endeavour, and you're putting yourself into it. And the assistance that we're now getting from the machine learning in the lab is liberating us, and I hope liberating mm. the graduate students, to devote themselves more to the creative aspects of science. Well, it's like having a calculator instead of having to do all of your, yeah, yeah. your right. numbers by hand, right? It's like, well, now I don't have to spend my time not making mistakes yeah. in arithmetic, right? I'd, li I'd like to just remind us all that Science does nevertheless have certain characteristic things which are worth mentioning in the context of scientific method or what that phrase is trying to talk about. And for example, we're very keen on asking ourselves not merely what did I just find out, but also what is actually the degree of precision of whatever it is that I just did? You know, how accurately can I, you know, I, I, no one measurement on its own is ever fully precise. So we're very keen on knowing what, what is the margin of error in anything we do. And that also comes along with it also of being, uh, what can I, sort of creatively suspicious. I, I, that's a slightly, just to get the idea, whenever we hear a line of argument, we're, we're willing to hit, receive the argument, but we're also sort of asking, hmm, okay, yeah, can I think of another way for it to be? You know, I'm always questioning. But it is a somewhat of an art, actually, now I find myself realising we mm -hmm. talk about it. Yes. Because this questioning attitude is not the same as just doubting everything completely. It mm. isn't that. But it is sort of asking, is this really, is that step following from the one before? Could it be otherwise? And of course, ultimately, can I think of a, 
is there another whole way of looking at this, which is just so much more natural and that just makes things fall into place in a more natural way? We're always on the lookout for, mm. for those things. And you can very quickly see how these are transferable skills to the life of faith, to the life of following Christ. And I'll offer you two more, which perhaps are folded into what you just said, Andrew, so perhaps I'm just unpacking them. One of the things that you might find yourself asking, particularly when you've had a really significant breakthrough in the lab, is you might find yourself asking, well, if that's the case, what then is the next thing that I don't understand that I want to learn about next? That's one thing that you might find yourself asking. And another question that you might find yourself asking is, how can I deploy this new understanding for practical benefits? What might I, or the community, because I might pass it on to others who are better engineers or better entrepreneurs or whatever than I am, how might they pass it on for beneficial effects, which might include them making a profitable industry out of it, but it might also include bringing significant benefits to humanity as a result. So you've got those two practical things that, well, you know, one of them is perhaps more intellectual. What do I next want to try to understand in the light of this? And the other one is perhaps more practical. How could this be turned to good use? And I think those two are transferable skills to the life of faith. You fired off a little synapse when you were, well, both of you did really, talking about how people conceptualize science is this very methodical sort of almost aseptic sort of process and what you're describing is no actually there's a great deal of judgment and intuition and project like trying to see around the corner it is actually at its highest level it's a very artistic endeavor and you reminded me of something that seems like there's a, a connection here so in the, you would say that the bedrock book of modern scientific marketing, like the great grandfather of Google Analytics and advertising today is a highly rigorous, measurable activity, okay? Well, it goes back to a book written in 1918 called Scientific Advertising by Claude Hopkins. And this guy was like, you know, testing newspaper ads and selling dish detergent. And he invented the coupon. The coupon was a way of testing advertising. How many people walk in the store with a coupon that they cut out of the newspaper, Mm -hmm. right? At the end of his book, he basically says, so we have laid all of this out. We have defined the scientific method of advertising. And now the only thing for us to do is to get on with our measurements. And it was almost like, well, this is it. So there's two things that happened that it's like, well, no, not quite. Okay. I mean, he was seeing as far as he could see. And you have to give the guy a lot of credit because he was like one of the true visionaries, right? Mm -hmm. First of all, he failed to anticipate what television would do which hadn't even been invented yet. And what television would end up doing is creating this massive amorphous thing called brand advertising where nothing is really measured accurately at all. They just sort of spray and pray, okay? 
And he didn't know that it would really not be before the internet that the whole world really took him seriously. Before the internet, only the mail order guys really took him seriously, okay? And the brand advertising guys, frankly, they did not want to deal with the level of discipline and measurement that he was trying to impose. So it really wasn't until about the turn of this century that what he was seeing really took hold, okay? Well, but then you get to, okay, so does this mean that marketing and advertising in the 21st century is just people methodically, robotically doing their measurements? No. What actually has done is it's shifted the real value from devising means of communication to innovation. In other words, you could put a hundred cell phone chargers on Amazon and duke it all out with, oh, do we have a better picture or do we have a better description or whatever? But because of the transparency of the reviews and like, it's really hard to hide anything anymore, right? If it's a bad cell phone charger. Well, now what wins is the most innovative, the product that is surprising, right? Like that's head and shoulders above all the other ones and is delight to people when they buy it. They're like, oh, wow, mm. this is great, mm. right? And that's art. Right. Okay. Right. And what you guys were describing <laughs> yes. is the art yes. of science. It's not just this methodical, mechanical, yeah. we robotically go to Oxford and we, you know, I mean, yes. you, you really get an impression from some writers and some yeah. journalists yeah. 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 that this is what scientists do is they just... I think there are two lovely ways of tying. One of them is that I suppose the biggest change in advertising that's happened in, what is it, the last 15 years or so, when the creators of search engines, most notably Google, mm -hmm. had been getting more and more personalized information in order to enhance your search experience. Yeah. That's why they did it. That was their original motivation. And they were very successful. And then someone came up with the idea, well, couldn't we use all this personalized information for other purposes as well? How about not just helping the person to search better, but helping someone to sell them things better? Right. And that's the change that, of course, now we all experience. And this may come as a surprise to outsiders. It doesn't come as a surprise to me or Andrew. We scientists are all individuals. We think differently. Yeah. We're good at different things. Mm -hmm. And um, no two scientists have the same abilities. And <laughs> one of the yes. things that we try to do when we're bringing on um, graduate students and supervising graduate students is to tailor a line of scientific inquiry, in other words, a project, to what they're good at and where their abilities and creativity lies. But then I wanted to take this a step further and tell you about the cover picture of It Keeps Me Seeking. Oh, yeah. And the cover picture is a detail from another painting by Roger Wagner, as it happens, one that hangs in uh, Auckland Castle, just outside Durham. Mm. Wow. And the painting is called Writing in the Dust. And in the, on the cover 
because it's such a powerful painting. We just had a detail on the cover, but in the end papers you can see the whole picture. And the picture has in the centre of it a figure in sort of blue clothing writing in the dust. And as with many of his paintings, Roger uses modern technology to bring the stories that we know from literature into the present. So there's a television crew there and some people picking up stones to throw, but there are others who've got their smartphones out who are photographing uh, the scene. Yes, <laughs> yes. And the ones who've got their stones to throw, contemplating throwing them because there's a woman there. And the story in many Bibles is called the story of the woman taken in adultery. Yeah. Uh, Roger's written a poem about this and he entitles the poem The Men Taken in Hypocrisy <laughs> because, <laughs> because yeah. you've got someone there in the centre of the picture in sort of white first century AD clerical robes but also wearing a pair of Ray-Ban sunglasses <laughs> and you can imagine this person saying to Jesus you know Moses said that a woman taken in adultery should be stoned. What do you say? What do you say? And he goes on pressing the question and uh, Jesus doesn't respond. He writes in the dust. And um, after he's gone on pressing the question repeatedly, Jesus uh, looks up and says, well, anyone who's never done anything like this themselves be the first to throw the stone at the poor woman. Mm. And they slink away. Mm. And as scientists, we often get asked, what about miracles? What do you think about miracles? And it's a good question. It's a very hard question, actually. Why do people care about miracles? Well, they think, well, you know, you, uh, turning water into wine, that's not really what you expect. You know, that's a surprise. It's not what you expect to happen. So <laughs> to say you, the least. How do you handle that surprise? And by choosing this picture for the cover, we wanted to make the point that there are many other surprises associated with the life and teaching of Jesus. Mm. Some of them much, much bigger than any surprises about, um, you know, material things. Mm. And particularly surprises in teaching about God's attitude to things, uh, teaching about what attitudes we should have. And as in this case, absolutely astonishing moral basis so the moral teaching of Jesus has huge surprises in it. And I don't know what you think. It may be that one of the reasons that we're less alert to them and we're less struck by them than we otherwise might be is the extent to which we're inheritors of those moral standards and, and mm. moral values. Yeah. Because we're heirs of them, they don't strike us now perhaps as surprising as they were when they were first introduced. I think you're entirely correct. I think, well, so for example, modern people are horrified at the violence in the Old Testament. And what I always ask is, well, where did you get the idea that you're supposed to be horrified by that? Right, right. Okay, like, wasn't it the norm uh, 3,000 years ago that when it comes springtime and the roads have dried enough to get a chariot on them that you go down to the village down the road and burn it down and take everything. Like, 
that was just normal. Yes. We're talking about human history throughout the world now. Horrifying is to contemplate that was normal in most parts of the world. Right. If you go back to that right. sort of period. Mm. You know, the way to win renown for a young man is broadly is to slaughter the enemies of mm. your own group. Anyway, exactly. so yeah. yeah, so this is how yeah, people yeah. used to think. Um, and uh, also, Andrew, as you're talking about that painting, which is a very interesting book cover, you know, it's, well, we need to put it in the show notes. Um, there is an amazing amount of ambiguity in Jesus' teaching and in these stories. Like, it never tells you what he wrote. Now, like, I'm a person, I love clarity, I love precision, I love, like, explaining things as clearly as possible, but there's a lot of what appears to be very intentional ambiguity in the way that the gospel stories are written to the point where people endlessly debate and argue Mm. about that, and it seems very, very significant to me that the only snapshot that you have of Jesus' childhood is they go for Passover, Jesus is missing for three days, and where do they find him? Debating Torah with the smartest guys in town at the temple. Yeah, yes. When he's 12. Yes, yes, yes. Now, if debating Torah isn't about trying to resolve ambiguity and never quite sorting it out. I don't know what it is. And wouldn't you love to have a transcript of those discussions? (laughs) Yes, I would kill for them. (laughs) You know, I had a friend, I think he was just trying to decide if he wanted to be a Christian. And we we were having this group discussion and we were reading this part where after the resurrection... Two men are walking on the road to Emmaus. Jesus shows up. I hope I'm not screwing this up, but he explains all of the prophecies. And then they suddenly realize who he was and he, yeah. and he vanished. Yeah. And my friend's like, wait, you didn't include that part. <laughs> I wanted to read that part and you left it out. Like, well, I don't know. I guess you have to go read the Hebrew Bible and, and figure it out for yourself. Yeah, it's yes. that. <laughs> and I think my understanding of that meeting is that the nature of that conversation, I think, look, here's the specific text ABC. This one says I'm going to do this. This one says I'm going to do that. Mm-hmm. No, he's not doing that. I think he's saying, look, the whole thrust of your being shown as the nature of God and how he really does things yes. Yes. is now what you've seen in me and how it came about and the suffering and the, the, the sort of the sense of complete solidarity between God and the human condition. You have in your Torah, if you only have eyes to see it, mm. and now I'm just showing you that actually what you saw in me was the fulfilment of that. Mm. And it's that rather than, you know, prophecy number one, this, yes. that, or the other. Well, mm, mm. That's good. I think I like that's that. right. This is the way the world works. Yeah. Well, this is the way God works in the world. Well, we're going to draw this to a close. I want to highly recommend It Keeps Me Seeking. Um, I was, maybe we could just, at the very end here, just talk a little bit about, I was a little bit surprised 
that Oxford University Press would be comfortable with a book that's as overtly faith positive as your book is. Would you care to say a word or two about how you, I mean, that's kind of threading a needle or it's a bit of a slalom for you to get that right. You well, speak to that a little I mean, bit? it's a nice opportunity to pay tribute to our editor at Oxford University Press, okay. Zonka Adlung. So he'd previously been editor for a technical monograph that I'd written. So a monograph at Oxford University Press, as with other publishers, is intended to be a definitive statement of the highest level of um, scholarship and science mm. about a specific topic that you can write. So that was a monograph on acoustic microscopy. And then he'd also acted as editor for the book that I wrote with Roger Wagner called The Penultimate Curiosity, which is a longer book than this one. And it's a series of case studies of the ways in which um, science has, as it were, swum in the slipstream of ultimate questions. And then Zonka had also acted as editor for some of your books, hadn't he, Andrew? Yeah. So we'd already got a relationship with him, and I think we'd already established a level of confidence, firstly, for the scholarly integrity of what we write, and second, because it's a publisher, that uh, for the sales as well. So these were all books that had sold well, and that's important if you're a publisher. Yes. Because however high the standard of a book is, if nobody's interested in reading it, the publishers, uh, they're hoping to do. So then I can tell you the process that we discussed this book with him. He was very excited about the idea. We told him what we were planning to tackle, four themes that run through the book, of which living with uncertainty is one. Another one is that we set a high bar on what counts as a valid argument. That's why, of course, it's nice to write with a philosopher a professor of philosophy at Princeton. We talk about the way this material world, as we study it, we find it calls us to something beyond itself. Mm. And the fourth of the themes is that we're describing God as a being to be known and not a hypothesis to be tested. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And so he liked this very much. He uh, accepted the manuscript and sent it out for scholarly review. So it was reviewed by, I'm trying to remember, five or six people. We don't know their names because it was anonymous, but we do know that they'd read it very carefully and they made some very shrewd observations, mm -hmm. uh, which helped us to improve the book further. And then he had to put it as a proposal to the delegates of the university press which is sort of like the board of the press, made up of, of actually rather senior and distinguished Oxford professors. And so that was the final step, that it needed them to approve it. And again, you know, they're wanting, on the basis of the recommendation from the editor and of the scholarly reviews, to say, first of all, is this a high standard of intellectual integrity? And second, is it one for which there's likely to be an appetite amongst readers and fortunately for us they decided yes to both yep. questions yep. well I think it's a wonderful book and I really appreciate the level of delicacy and nuance um, well it's no secret that there's so much polarization in the world and there's so much lack of nuance in most 
media that there's, I see a, a considerable appetite now. Well, I mean, not a week goes by without me having a conversation with somebody about, aren't you just sick of all of this political, you know, in the UK at the mm -hmm. moment, it's Brexit. In the US, it's Trump and everything. It's like, people are just so sick of this constant battle. Like, how about we sit down and have a, a delicate, considerate conversation? That's what you guys have done, so. And you may, you may remember, but let me tell the listeners to this, that um, three of, most of the book is just that we've jointly written it together and we've agreed on the text. But three of the chapters are transcripts of conversations we had amongst ourselves because some of the people we sounded the ideas out on said, we'd love to know how you talked about these things amongst yourself oh, when really? the three of you were writing. So we thought, well, we'll give you a window on that. Yeah. And... On the first of those, we put at the top, you know, if as you read this conversation, you think, well, we're still forming our ideas, we're still thinking about these things, uh, that's an accurate impression, and we want people to be able to see that and enjoy it. We were very pleased that Times Higher Education in the UK uh, chose this, chose It Keeps Me Seeking, as their book of the week for the first issue of 2019. Excellent. with a very positive review from a very distinguished scholar at Durham University, who mm -hmm. I think picked out the most important things in the book and things that we really wanted to communicate. So we were very pleased with that review. Well, congratulations on a great book, and I, I recommend uh, Keeps Me Seeking by Steen Briggs and Halverson, and um, thank you for having me at your home, Andrew. Thank you, Perry. Thank you very much. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com. Evolution 2.0